Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Because we acknowledge the authorities of scriptures, um, at the end of this reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I implore you to respond, thanks be to God. Our reading will be taken from Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 from verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 6. Judges chapter 2 from verses 6 to chapter 3. Verse 6, I read, After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout their lifetime of Joshua, throughout the lifetime of Joshua, and of the elders who outlived him, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath, Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They took, sorry, they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them, who sold them into the hands of their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who, served, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel. And he said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their ancestors did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain 
he did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Chapter 3. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of Israel who had not, who had, not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the, of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the, in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebohamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands, which had given their ancestors through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Tedu. Good morning, everyone. You know, as, as Tedu was reading, I was feeling sorry for him. You know, the Hivite, Bell, something, how, something, and all that. And for all the people that are going to be reading during this series, you know, just prepare yourselves. I think you need to be practicing all these different names. Well, it's nice to see everyone again. And this is City Church. And um, for those who are new here, Thanks uh, for being with us. We hope that you have a blessed time. And for those who we've not seen in a while, whether you're traveling in or you're just visiting, you know, we're glad to have you. Now, we're starting another series. We've had two this year. We started with one in January to April, and we're looking through the Gospel of John then. And starting as a church, we wanted to put Jesus Christ at the front and center explicitly, as you see in the book of John. But also to prepare us for our mission month, which is this month, if you like, to prime the pump for those who are gathered here to get us to be passionate about mission the way the Bible calls us to. We had a mini-series in May, and that was the Lost and Found series, and we're looking at how heaven rejoices at the conversion of one sinner. But now, what we want to do is sort of focus on what it will look like to have a gospel-centered renewal or revival in our city. You know, our vision statement there that... when Kemi was speaking, says that we want to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews the city of Lagos. In other words, we are passionate about the city of Lagos, but we know that Lagos will only really flourish if you have a gospel-centered revival, renewal. Now, whether you're Christian or not, you know that, I mean, we're celebrating 50 years of Lagos, and you know those um, posters they've been putting all around the bridge, and in some places, sometimes they constitute a bit of a nuisance, and you wonder why some people's faces are there, but we'll leave that aside. But, I mean, that's celebrating all the fantastic things that Lagos has achieved in 50 years. And let's be you know, quite honest, this is a great city. We've achieved so many wonderful things. And yet, for that, all of that, we know that we still need more positive change socially and culturally. Socially and culturally. Now, if we take the social aspect, why I say we need more change is... For instance, we have kidnapping and robbery. They seem to be on the rise. Even if it's not statistically on the rise, at least we know a few people who have been victims of this, one of our own even just last week. Ethnic relations can still improve. Corruption doesn't seem like it's changing. And sometimes you wonder when the compassion that we have for one another, especially when you're on the road or you're in the bus, or, you know, customer service is not as it should be. There's a lack of empathy that we have with one another. And so socially, you still say, look, things can improve, or things have to improve. 
also culturally. Now, though we celebrate all the creativity that we see in our arts and our music and our entertainment, at the same time, there's, there seems to be in many of the lyrics of the songs, in the videos, there seems to be a celebration of one, the mediocre, but even more importantly, there seems to be a celebration of what is debauched. You know, women are still seen as objects and uh, people whose bodies alone are the things that should titillate men and there's nothing else. And this even translates into how women are still being treated in the workplaces, in their marriages. They're still really undervalued. So we still have a long way to go. Things are moving maybe in some good positive direction in some places, but there are lots of things that need to change in our city. Now as a church, we believe that the renewal that we would like to see, a social and cultural renewal, is going to be hinged on a spiritual renewal if it has to be sustainable. So when we say we want to renew the city of Lagos, it's really spiritually, socially, and culturally. Because if you don't change things spiritually and morally, if you remove those foundations, as we see now, social, cultural, and even economic decline is sure. And Israel, in the time of Judges, proves this. Now, most of the time, when we think about the book of Judges, we think about Samson. The kids love that. Tofumi loves Samson. How, that's my younger son, he loves how powerful Samson is, you know, carrying this one, killing the, um, uh, uh, how many, he killed 1,000 men with the jawbone of an ass, you know, all those wonderful things. For men, you know, Gideon, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. I know some men here think that they're mighty men of valor. Just ask your wife whether they think the same thing. And then there's Deborah for the women, a mother in Israel. I just have to say that there's only one mother in Israel in this church, and you know who that is. Faye, nice to see you again. <laughs> no, you see, if we don't really know what the cure if we don't know what the problem is, we can't diagnose the problem, we can't really prefer a good cure. So we're going into this series to understand a nation who are God's own people. They experienced 400 years of spiritual decline, which led to social and cultural decline. Now we're studying that we're studying the reverse case so that we as a church should know how or why they actually fell into that and how we shouldn't go about doing the same thing, all right? Now, in the background, let me just give you a short background. If you, uh, the beginning of Tedo's reading, uh, verse in the very, very first verse, that's chapter 2, verse 6, it says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. They went to take possession of the land, their own inheritance. What's going on there? Which land? And why is it their inheritance? Well, if you remember, God delivered these people who God had made a covenant with through Abraham. They'd multiplied and they were under slavery in Egypt. So God had delivered them from the yoke of slavery in Egypt. So there's these people. But these people are not going to be a nation until they have three things. A people would not be a nation until they have three things. What are the three things? Well, they need laws. They need a land, and they need a lord or king. Laws, land, and a lord. Now, if you read from Exodus chapter 20 to 24, they received the laws through Moses. Now, they're about to go into the land through Joshua. So that's why we find Joshua. Joshua is quite prominent in the first two chapters of this book. Why? Because the previous book, 
is the book of Joshua. And there's some inter, uh, inter uh, overlapping. I was wondering interlapping. Preachers, we form words all the time, you know, just on the pulpit. Anyway, there's some overlapping at the ending of the book of Joshua and the beginning of the book of Judges. Now, when Joshua was sending them to the land, they had specific instructions. Um, some, we see in the book of Joshua, but some that Moses had already told them before. So, for instance, in the book of Joshua, in verse 23, they were told, in chapter 23, 6 to 7, be strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, without turning aside to the right or to the left. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. So they were called to covenant faithfulness. Obey the commandments that are in the book of Moses. God made a covenant with them with the things that Moses, well, God had spoken through Moses to them. So they were called to covenant faithfulness. They were also called not to associate themselves with the evil practices of the nations that are around them. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 and 2, it says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. How are they not meant to associate with them and take up their gods? Is that they should destroy them totally. That was the instruction God gave to them. Now, what you see in the book of Judges is a spiritual decline. These people decline constantly, almost a downward spiral. Why? Because they give themselves to idolatry. They reject God's rulership. And therefore, they live as they want. In fact, if you want to summarize the book of Judges, you can summarize it with one verse. And it's in 17 verse 6 and 21 verse 25. Basically this. In those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. Idolatry, rejection of God's rule, no king. And therefore, everyone lived as they wanted to their own. They became their own kings. Now, as I said, this leads to social cultural decline. And it's crying out for a true Lord and King, not just laws and land. Therefore, idolatry, newsflash, is a very big problem. And we're going to look at that. Um, this, uh, the reading that Tedo took is basically the summary of the book of Judges. So before we go into some of the personalities of those judges in the remaining five uh, uh, sermons, we want to look at the summary of the book of Judges. What is the biggest problem there? And how we as Lagosians or non-Lagosians can respond, all right? So this first sermon, we're going to look at idol worship, and we'll ask, we're going to answer three questions, all right? How did we get there? Where does it lead to? How do we get out? How did we get there? Where does it lead to? And how, did, how do we get out, okay? So let's go to how did we get there. Now, look at something. In verse 6, uh, verse 7, it says that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. They served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Faithful people. Then you get to verse 10. 
After that, whole, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another great generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And later it starts talking about how they served idols. How is it that one generation is here and they are serving so faithfully and then you have another generation not so far away, a quick rapid decline, and those ones are now given to idols. It says that they didn't know God's act. It's not that they didn't know um, what God had done, but it just played no central role in their life. As far as they were concerned, it's like fairy tales to them. This morning, as we were driving, coming around here, uh, Tofumi said, uh, Daddy, do you know that um, Pharaoh wanted to kill all the um, uh, boy, boy children, the, the, male, uh, the, the baby boys? I said, yes. I said, I said yeah, he, he did. He said, Antimile is a baby boy. I said, yeah, that's, that's why Pharaoh is such a bad man. He said, Pharaoh is a bad man. Yeah, I said, because he wanted to kill all the baby boys. Do you want Pharaoh to kill? So would you have liked him to kill um, Timile? He said, no. He said, he said, but that is Pharaoh real. I said, uh, yes, he's real. He said, okay, I just thought he was in the Bible. <laughs> I thought, wow, doctrine of inerrancy is going out of the way. But it's almost like that for the children of Israel. You see, these stories of what God had done and whether he existed, it was almost like fairy tales. It was in the book of the law of Moses. And we know what is in the book of the law of Moses. It's fairy tales that play no central role in my life. How is it that you had a generation that were faithful and then not too long after a generation who the word of God and the acts of the things of God played no central role in their lives? Well, the way we can find that out is by knowing that there are actually three generations. Right? You can call them Generation X, Generation Y, and Generation Z. Who is Generation X? Generation X is in verse 7. Those during the lifetime of Joshua. Right? After Joshua, um, the, uh, the people served the uh, Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. Who is Generation Z? Generation Z is those in verse 10. The another generation. The generation after, not just Joshua had died, but all the people who were also in the lifetime of Joshua. That's Generation Z. And I want to say, so if Generation X are the faithful generation, Generation Z are the idolatrous generation, then who is Generation Y? Well, Generation Y takes us to chapter 1. Now, though we started in 2 verse 6, the introduction of this book is basically like two introductions, almost like Genesis 1 and 2. So um, chapters 1, 1 to 2, 5 is one kind of introduction, but 2, 6 to 3, 6 is another kind of introduction. So we find Generation Y in the first chapter. What was their problem? Well, their problem is what we can call half-hearted worship. I'll explain. Half-hearted worship. Generation X was faithful. Generation Z was idolatrous. Generation Y had a problem of half-hearted worship. Now, if you go to chapter 1, in verses 1 to 11 and 17 to 18, what do we see in chapter 1, um, um, 1 to 11, 17 to 18? We find that they are about to enter into the land. Let me just read the, um, the first verse. Oh, I'll go, let me read the first verse in chapter 1. one. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites, so the next gen this generation, why is after, immediately after the death of Joshua. So after the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is going up to first fight against the Canaanites? So they're going to fight the Canaanites. Now, the Lord answered that Judah would go forth first. Now, 
with Judah were the Simeonites, right? Now, don't forget that Israel, the nation of Israel had 12 tribes. So when I say yeah, Judah and, and Simeon, I'm talking about some of the tribes. So two of those tribes go. And verse 1 to 11 and 17 to 18, you see that they actually are very faithful. But what I mean by faithful is exactly what we saw in Deuteronomy 7. They completely destroy all the Canaanites that they were given there. Look at verse 17. Um, then the men of Judah went with the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, and attacked the Canaanites living in Zephyr, and they totally destroyed the city. They totally destroyed it. So these guys were completely faithful. And so you think, okay, everything is going well. But then verse 19 to verse 36, that's the, uh, from 19 to the end of the chapter, we see something, a totally different story. This same Judah couldn't drive out the people who lived in the plains. That's verse 19. Or Benjamin could not do so with the Jebusites. They killed some, but they didn't completely drive them out. That's verse 21. Or Manasseh, Manasseh actually, for, exploit, for economic reasons and really exploitative economic reasons, they fed the same with the people of Bethshan and some other names I cannot pronounce. They basically didn't destroy them. Why? They thought, ah, these people would be good for forced labor. And so they kept some of them there. And other tribes did the same thing. Even take Zebulon. Zebulon, at this point, they said they were comfortable to live, to allow the Canaanites to live with them. Also for exploitative reasons. Now, Zebulon actually allowed the Canaanites to live with them. Asher actually reversed it. That, uh, Zebulon was verse 30. Asher in verse 30, 31 to 32, he says, they lived among the Canaanites. Oh, my word. But the worst of them all was Dan. Don't name your children Dan. All right? They fed the worst. They were confined to a particular space by the Amorites, verse 34. They were confined. They were like, hey, don't, you don't come. God told them to go and drive them out. Those ones are saying, no, we'll keep you here. I mean, it was so bad that by the end, in verse 36, it seemed more important talking about the Amorites' boundaries than that of Israel. The narrator was telling us about the boundaries that the Amorites occupied. Hang on, these were the people that were meant to go in and actually get their own possession and their inheritance. We should be talking about the borders of Israel. But this is what, when you kind of do the commandments of God, and on the other hand, you don't, this is what it leads to. You see, in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, this mode of behavior, when God is speaking through his angel to them, he calls it outright disobedience. He said, why have you disobeyed me? What is half-hearted um, worship? Let me tell you what it is. Let me read verse 1b to, of chapter 2, verse 1b to 2a. It says, God says, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I would never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break their altars. Half-hearted worship essentially is to make a covenant with God and make another covenant with another God. I made my covenant with you, and I said don't make a covenant with these people. And half-hearted worship is trying to make a covenant with God on the one hand and to make a covenant with another God. A double Minded man is unstable in all his ways. You see, this is even the problem that we've had, I would say, 
tracking Christianity in Lagos in the last 40 years is a bit of our history and heritage. Now, we have a faithful history that has continued. But there's also a history that has also mixed these two things together. And it's still present with us today. You see, too much of our Christianity mixes God's words and our own words. It mixes God's wisdom and our wisdom. It mixes God's morality and our morality. We, all, we seem to revise the dangers of money, sex, and power. We find them to be less harmful than what the Bible says they are. Yeah, those things, of course. Eh, but we are very wise. We have now mastered money. We've now mastered uh, power. We've now mastered sex. You see, at the heart of half-hearted worship is the folly, if you read the book of Proverbs, is the folly of what you can call accommodationism. You accommodate things. That is, unwisely, Christians unwisely playing around with evil, expecting it not to hurt us. I'll say that again. Accommodationism is Christians unwisely playing around with evil, expecting it not to hurt us. It's like holding a razor blade very, very firmly at the edges with your hand. And then all of a sudden, you're like, ah, why did this thing cut me? Duh. You see, so some of the ways we deal with accommodationism is we redefine evil. Let me put it this way. We call harshness and injustice, we call it tough love. Or we call indecency, we call it self-expression. Or self-love is now called following your heart or the spirit. Worst of all, adultery is now an opportunity for grace and mercy. But if we are redefining evil, also sometimes we are redefining what is good. What used to be called spiritual discipline is now called legalism. Or holiness and holy living is called moralism. We're in the time of grace. Come on. Or to learn doctrine is called dogmatism, and doctrine always divides. Why are we arguing over scriptures? We just need to experience God. Confessing sin or regular church attendance is now called religion. And we all know religion is bad, isn't it? Even though it appears in the Bible. Not always bad. See, far too often I meet people complaining about their work with God. My work with God is just, I don't know, what am I going to do? It's just going down. And how do they get there? Well, I'll tell you how they get there. Just like a dripping tap. Drip by drip, they accept and accommodate what is evil or what is unwise. You see, the reason why we have the book of Proverbs and then laws of the Bible is what you, Proverbs gives us wisdom and tells us about foolishness. Now, foolishness is not necessarily sinful. But when you don't go with when you don't go with what is wise, eventually you will sin. In other words, wise practices keep you from breaking commandments. And quite often what happens is that we act foolishly, playing around with evil. We don't immediately sin, but we play around with it, and eventually that starts to move us step by step by step away. Sometimes we would say that in the name of engagement, and I'm all for engagement with people, but can I suggest to you that if your closest friends, if your closest friends are not Christians, you have a problem. Not to say that you shouldn't have friends that are not Christians, but if the people that you hang around mostly with are non-Christians, why do you think you're having a dry spiritual walk? 
You may say, I'm doing that so that I can influence them. Is it that you're influencing them or they're influencing you? Accommodationism is at the heart of half-hearted worship. Now, again, I must state clearly that this is not a call to disengage from the world. The Bible forbids that. In fact, Israel were meant to be the light to all the nations. But it's also a call, which the Bible also points to, to be careful. It's a call to be weary. Because the angel of the Lord says, half-hearted worship eventually leads to idolatry. Chapter 2, verse 3. And I've also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you, and their gods will become snares for you. How did they get there? Well, the question was half-hearted worship. So let's answer the second question. Where does this lead to? Now, don't forget the progression that we made. There was a faithful generation, there was a half-hearted generation, and then eventually an idolatrous generation. In other words, you can say there was commitment, then there was complacency, which eventually led to compromise. Commitment, then complacency, which eventually led to compromise. Where does this lead to? As we see, we see in verses 11 to uh, 13, basically leads to idolatry. Now, I want to answer two questions, because we throw out so many words sometimes in Christianity, in, Christian, in Christendom, and we don't really understand it. So I want to answer two questions. What is idolatry, and what does idolatry entail? What is idolatry, and what does it entail? So let's start with the first one. Now, first of all, for the concept of idolatry only makes sense in what we can call a monotheistic framework. What do I mean by monotheistic? It's like a big word that doesn't. It basically means a system where there's one God, where you declare there's one God. Not just that, like in our Yoruba traditional religion, not just that there is a supreme God and then there are lesser gods. No, exclusively one God. Now, Israel believed that. So when it says in verse 12 and 13, where it says that they will follow other gods, plural, it means that the people who served other gods, the Canaanites worshipped other gods, not other, another god, but they worshipped other gods. For you to be in a system that worships other gods, you cannot be accused of idolatry. Here's what I mean. Idolatry in verse 17 of chapter 2 is called spiritual prostitution. Yet they would not listen, to, um, look at verse 17b, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Prostituted themselves. Now, I don't know if you've heard um, of this thing. It's not even a concept. It's actually something that happens. Have you heard of open relationships? Yeah? Open relationships. Show of hands if you've been in an open relationship or you're in one. No, 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 don't worry. Just show of hands. We'll just disrupt the service. We'll have a deliverance session here. There's no problem. All right, now, nah, I'll come. No, I, I'm not trying to. If you're, if you're in one, we're happy to have you here. All right, no, but an open relationship is this, for, for some of us that don't know. If you, a monogamous is the opposite of a monogamous, a monogamous uh, relationship. Monogamous relationships are closed relationships. By closed, we mean they are exclusive. In a monogamous relationship, you don't give what is exclusive in the one-on-one -on -one relationship to someone who is outside. In fact, once it's closed, it means that if it's not the two of you, any other person is outside of that relationship. 
So people, but people in open relationships say, well, it can be not just two of you. Two of you are the central figures. You have an understanding, but the understanding is that it's open. So if someone, in an, in two people in an open relationship, one man sleeps with another person outside, or quote unquote outside, you can't be accused of adultery or, you know, unfaithfulness. And so if you sell, if you're in a system where there are a variety of gods, to worship another god and not this particular god, it is fair game. That's why Hindus don't have the system. Hindus who some people say have, what, 300,000 or is it 300 million? I don't know God. Right? You can't, there's no such thing as idolatry. Because you worship this one and you worship that one. Now, some of the other gods are larger than the, you know, they're more significant than the others. So when we speak about idolatry, just as we speak about the close relationships, we're saying in the service of this God, there is no other one. So idolatry can only work in a negative sense in a monotheistic framework, all right? But what does it entail? Well, what it entails is a forsaking and a following resulting in rebellious actions. Forsaking and following resulting in rebellious action. Look at verse 12. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, served the, Baal, uh, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods. They forsook that particular God, followed some other gods, and in verse 17, it says, they quickly turned from the way of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's command. So by, by forsaking God, they followed other gods, and this showed up in the fact that they did not obey God's commandments. It involves neglecting the true God, worshipping a false God, which is evidenced by certain rebellious behaviors. You see, human beings are defined mainly not by what they think, but how they love. We are defined mainly not by how we think, but how we love. That is our actions. The things that we do most of the time. You know how we, for instance, look, as some of you know, I've been trying to lose weight for a while. Not lose weight generally, but lose weight in a part of my body that isn't. Uh, I've been trying. Now, I know exactly what to do. Right? I was still talking to my wife yesterday. The first day I was talking about, you know, how it's the carb. You see, if we're, uh, my energy is burnt, the energy I burn is really the energy from carbs. Right? But if I want to be like LeBron James, because I was looking at this, LeBron, how LeBron James got his figure. He, he didn't lose weight, but his weight, he didn't lose weight, but he lost fat. Right? And I was like, yeah, this guy looks, you know. So I was like, it's that you have to burn the carb. Don't burn the energy through carbs. Burn the energy through fat. So that involves changing your diet. Have less, less carbs in your diet. I know exactly what to do. But I love a bar. I love it. Honestly, I do. I've tried. I've, I, you know, I just love it. And even when, when I've said, don't give us a, don't give too much a bar and all that. Don't give. In fact, that day, as we were talking, they gave us a bar. I said, baby, look at it. <laughs> it's so big. It's so big. So I decided, no. Carbs must go. So I cut it into half. And I put it aside. But the okra was so nice. <laughs> as I took the first whatever of the okra, I said, baby, that thing that I've left, that half that I've left, I will go back. And surely I went back. What's happening? There is the commandment there. It's not just about thinking, because we're not primarily moved by what we think. 
we're primarily moved by what we love. And it affects both our desires, our, our emotions, and also our will. Listen, that's why the Bible says that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, not thinketh in his mind. The Bible, the Hebrew concept of the center of a man was the heart. And it's not the seat of your emotions. No, it affects your mind and your emotions and also your will. Whatever your mind, whatever your heart loves, your mind will find reasonable, your emotions will find desirable, and your will will find doable. This is why when people fall into fornication or whatever, they will have given you many different reasons as to what happened before they got there. They had legitimate reasons. Oh, no, I had to be there because she was, I had to teach her. You see, you start to rationalize it. Why? Because your mind, your heart, is following and loving something else. So idolatry basically is what is our greatest love. If our greatest love is not the true God, we are serving an idol. And that idol becomes king of our lives. You see, when it says that they serve Baals, Another, uh, the translation of Baal is basically Lord. We have another Lord over our lives. And it affects how we, uh, what we think about what we do and how we feel. This is why when it says they followed other gods, it also says that they worshipped other gods in verse 19. And also, this is why there is a big problem. Sometimes you see, some people say, you know, in semantics is words. Words matter. Quite often, this is why it's a very dangerous thing to say that when we gather together, the slow songs that we sing is worship, and then the fast songs that we sing is praise. It's like some many people say, you know what, I just like to worship. I love to worship. And when we say worship, we basically mean the songs that we sing. If you have a narrow definition of worship, here's what happens. You would have people who worship on, some worship on Sunday, but for the love of sex are unfaithful in their marriages and have sex while unmarried. You have people who worship on Sunday, but for the love of money will make unlawful gains through corrupt means or are ruthless with their staff and uncaring to their customers. For the love of power, you would have people who worship on Sunday, but they will use people without any thought to how those people are damaged or how those people feel. And yet, they worship. No, worship is really what we love and how we are... It always works out in the actions that we commit. How do I know what you love and how do I know what you worship? Well, I can look at the actions that you commit. And that's why in verse uh, 3 of chapter 2, it says that idolatry is a trap and a snare. It's a snare. In other words, trying to trap us into something. Let me tell you two of those problems, the, the snares the traps that it gives to us. It gives us self-inflicted wounds. That is, it changes us. When we go after what the idols are promising us, if we succeed at what they offer, we become considered jerks who use and look down on people. When we don't succeed, we become disillusioned, gullible cranks who always envy people. You either look down on people or you envy people. In other words, idolatry doesn't lead us to a good point. They are self-inflicted wounds. But it's even worse. It's even worse. They incur the anger of the true and betrayed God. You see, it's like if, if you are in a relationship and the person that you are with, you've committed your heart to, then goes and sleeps with the other person. And then the person says, why are you even angry? Don't you know that the Bible says you shouldn't be angry? Nonsense. 
The person has every right and should be angry. If the person is not angry, that means the person never loved you. And God, when we prostitute ourselves with other gods, God is angry. It incurs the wrath of God. And that's why it's in verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, and verse 20 to verse 23. It talks about the anger of God. Verse 12 at the end says, They arouse the Lord's anger. In verse 14, in his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. God's anger was upon them because they followed other gods. When seen in an eternal perspective, this God's anger leads to what the Bible calls hell. Idolatry will lead you to hell. And in the present, if our cities are built upon idolatry, it will only lead to distress, as we see in verse 15. They said the people were in great distress. But it will also lead to groaning that is as a result of oppression and affliction, as we see at the end of verse 18. I get the hint, but I'm just going to my third point, so hold on. And so we've seen how we got there. And we see where it leads to. Now, finally, how do we get out of it? How do we get out of it? We've seen the half-hearted and idol worship are very terrible. They're destructive. They have both present and eternal consequences. Rather than lead to renewal, they lead to moral, social, cultural, and even economic decay. So what should we do? Well, let's repent in our distress and affliction. If you're in that place where you see that your idols are disappointing you, bringing you in distress and affliction, repent. But what do I mean by repent? Well, it's very simple. Reverse what happened in the first place. Now, in the first place, remember, they forsook God. They followed another God, which resulted in rebellious actions. All right? Repentance is also going to be returning. If you forsook the Lord, now return to that God. Follow him, which will result in godly action. Now, those three things are very important. Why? Because this is a full-blown heart commitment to God. It's evidenced by the people in people around us. What I mean by that is there are pseudo kind of returns. Not full. It's, it's not really a return. It's kind of. So, for instance, if you have a return that does not involve your will and your mind, but you had an encounter with God and therefore you changed. This I had in my university days. I had two encounters with God. They didn't last very long, I can assure you. One of them had to do with a girlfriend that I liked. My girlfriend, she became a Christian. So me too, I became a Christian because she was a Christian. How long do you think that would last you? No. What I had was not repentance. It was emotionalism. It only involved my emotions. It didn't involve my will or my mind. What if it involves your will and it doesn't involve your mind and your emotions? Well, that is just self-resolution. I will change. Why? Because I'm a good person. I can change myself. So you stop doing bad things. I stop doing bad things because I don't want people to see me as a bad person. That's not repentance. That's self-resolution. And the heart of it is self-love. What if it doesn't involve your emotion? And it doesn't, uh, what if it only involves your mind? It doesn't involve your emotion and your will. It's a change of mind, as someone would say. You know, repentance is just a change of mind. No, it's not just a change of mind. It, is, it involves a change of mind, but it's more than that. If it's just a change of mind, then that is what you call rationalism. Repentance is rational, but it's not rationalism. It's a full-blown heart commitment, a heart change. And the heart always affects the emotions, the will, and the mind. 
And that's what we see in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Repent. Turn. Turn in a way that makes you then follow this God in full-blown heart commitment, which will be evidenced by change in your actions. But there's one more thing. You see, because what about the conditions of judgment the conditions of judgment brought about through idol worship. Remember, we said these people were in distress and they were under oppression and affliction. People who are distressed, under oppression and affliction, guess what? They can't help themselves. They can't get out of their mess. They can only groan for help, as we see in verse 18. They groan for help. In other words, they needed an outside intervention. And this is why in verse 16 and verse 18, it says, God raised up judges who saved them. You can't save yourself. You need an outside savior. And this is what these judges were doing. That's why we're going to look at some of those judges. But we see in this summary of the book, now these judges waged victorious wars against the enemy of God's people, whether they killed the Philistines, the Amorites, all of those people. But there's a problem. There are two problems with the judges. And in this summary of the book, we are told, what is the problem with the judges? Well, in verse 18, notice it says that whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as what? The judge lived. There's another problem. Verse 17. Yet, after, after verse 16, where it says that God saved them out of the hands of the raiders, verse 17 then said, yet they would not listen to their judges. So there was a problem with the authority of the judges, and also there was a problem with the life of the judges. Whilst the judges had saved them, ah, fine, everything is fine. You saved them, killed their enemies, wonderful. Now the judges are now instructing them they don't listen to the judges. Because the judges did not have the authority of kings. But also, they were just waiting for the judges to die, and then they went back to sin that was even greater than what the judges saved them from before. See verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to wait even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. The judges' authority was not the authority of a king, and so the people didn't listen to them. But also, the judges could only have an effect in them as long as they lived. They were just waiting for the judges to die. If only we had a king who would never die and can save us to the uttermost. Ah. You see, judges ultimately, the judge of Israel ultimately failed because they precisely point us to another king, a savior king. Jesus died as God's enemy because he took his people's sin, but then defeated the ultimate enemies of death, sin, and the devil by rising from the dead and is now ruling over them to ensure salvation to the end. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 7 says. Hebrews 7 says, but because Jesus lives forever, he doesn't die like the judges. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. The judge could only save when he was alive. What about when he dies? Well, Jesus is a king, a savior king who is alive forevermore. 
The gospel is basically that he is the crucified, risen Savior who is Lord of the world and is impending judge. What does Jesus call us to do if he's truly that king? Well, he calls us to repent from idolatry. If you are one of those people here who will not really consider herself a Christian, this is not a king that wants to destroy you. He was destroyed for your sake. And he says, why not you repent? That is, forsake that, return to me. Forsake that, those false gods. Follow me and see your actions change. Become his followers. But if we're also here and we're half-hearted, we also need to repent and save the generation that is coming after us so that the ones after them will not totally be given to idolatry. See, it is when that happens, when we return to Jesus, those nations that are around us, they will not, the nations that are around us, as verse one, uh, th chapter 3, verses 1 to 5 say, they will not be nations to test us, but they will be nations that we can disciple to the worship of God. Matthew 28 says, Jesus, after his reason, says, I have all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? All nations. They are no longer there to test us. But now they are there for us to disciple. When we disciple them, all nations will worship before the throne of God. Revelation 5 verse, uh, 7 verse 9. After this I looked, and therefore before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne of the Lamb of God. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Do we want to see cultural and social change in our city? We can only do that if we first have moral and spiritual change. But moral and spiritual change is not first and foremost a change of your habits or a change of your mind. It's a direction, the redirecting of your worship and your love to the true God, but only through the Savior King, that is Jesus Christ. If we see that multiplied in our city, guaranteed. Our story will not be like the book of Judges, but it will be like the book of Acts. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for filling us with the goodness of your word. Lord, we look for a change in our city, but we know that the change in our city would only occur when there is a change in our hearts. We come to repent of our half-heartedness, of our mixing of our worship with making covenants in one hand with you and a covenant with other gods. And some of us is just making a covenant with other gods. Lord, I pray that you will not cast us out as we come to you, but we ask that you renew us, renew our hearts through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos <laughs>